this morning. May it last and may we carry it with us. It's always there. Sometimes we don't recognize it. So Father, we bow in awe of You. May our thoughts and our hearts and everything that we do today reflect that. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now we've uh, we've we've all. I'm I'm going to assume something here, and if you haven't, you can probably look it up later. But we've all seen or heard about an ugly green ogre named Shrek. But have you ever heard of the real life woolly sheep named Shrek? In 1998, there was a sheep that got away from the shepherd. Intentional, accidental, we'll never know. But regardless, he got away and uh, he was in the wild for about six years. Now fortunately for him, uh, New Zealand doesn't have any carnivores to go after him. So his biggest problem was in fact that his wool became so thick and so rounded that it, it covered his eyes and he could barely walk. So he found himself a little cave, and every day he would kind of by hoof feel go out there and he would eat what grass he could find. And then finally, uh, someone, someone found him. And, and he, had a, he was a real problem because when a sheep's wool gets that thick and that heavy, it gets rounded, and they can—they literally, you know, the the saying, I've, "I've fallen down and I can't get up." That's what happens. They roll over, and they're just kicking their little legs up into the sky, and they're, you know, they're pretty defenseless anyway. Uh, but when that happens, and then when it rains and it gets wet, they can barely carry the burden. And so it was with Shrek. He was in danger of rolling on his back and dying. And when they found him, the first thing that they had to do in order for him to follow the shepherd to go back down to the, uh, the fields where he belonged was they had to pin the wool up out of his eyes so that he could see. You know, he finally saw the, uh, the light of day. And so it was from that that he hit the New Zealand national spotlight. And so they sheared him on live national TV in New Zealand. And this sheep gave enough wool to create 20 full suits for grown men, along with uh, some shawls and some socks uh, to boot. And so, I mean, I tell you, though, uh, sheep have their defenders. But I'm going to say something. If you're a sheep defender, we can have coffee afterwards. But I think sheep on the whole are dumb. <laughs> I do. The Los Angeles Times reported just a few years ago that a shepherd lost 83 sheep because he failed to keep them from their food source. <laughs> and they didn't, they didn't know when to stop eating. And so they, they, they exploded. These sheep did. George Washington declared this, If freedom of speech is taken away from us, then we will be led away dumb and silent like sheep.
to the slaughter. So I guess Washington didn't have a real high opinion of them either. And, you know, while the image of the shepherd and his, and his little crook and all that, you know, maybe iconic uh, and so forth, uh, have you ever seen a real shepherd? Just curious. You ever seen what a real shepherd does with a real, <laughs> with a real staff? <laughs> they whack them. And when I say whack, I don't mean prod. I mean, we're talking baseball, line them up, Hank Aaron, whoop, to get them to go where they want. And if they can't reach them, do you know what they'll do? They'll pick up a rock. I don't mean a pebble. I mean a rock. And they'll throw it at them. Boom. Why? Because sheep, sheep are dumb. Did you look, did you look at your bulletin cover? <laughs> what a great... What a great shot. When Barb and I first, we, we came from Italy and the, the beauty of Italy and, and uh, they sent us to Goodfellow Air Force Base. I remember Barb in tears. Uh, she says, where is Goodfellow Air Force Base? And I said, well, honey, it's in San Angelo. It's tears even more. <laughs> Where's San Angelo? <laughs> and I said, in Texas. <laughs> Where in Texas? And uh, anyway, we got there, and you may not know this, but San Angelo, if you've ever heard of the Doolittle Raiders, the Doolittle Raiders, that's where they all came from, except for Doolittle. He came from someplace else. But all the, all the men who flew those planes, they came from there. So out in front is this B-25 Mitchell. But next to it was a big old fiberglass sheep. And I'm going, what in the world is a fiberglass sheep doing at the front of an Air Force base. In fact, this little guy right here, I did the National Prayer Luncheon, and this was the gift they gave me. A sheep. But he's a tough sheep. He's in a leather jacket, and he's got his bomber goggles on and whatever all else, you know. And uh, they're, they're thanking me for, what I, for what, I, what I did there. But I don't know about you, but when I think of Sheep, I'm not thinking of Air Force bombers, right? Well, it turns out, and you may know this, you may not know this, there's a little bit of trivia, that up until the 1950s, San Angelo was the largest sheep and wool producing area in the world, taken over only by Australia in the 50s. And in fact, in the nation, San Angelo, and you have to go there on purpose, San Angelo is the largest city in the United States that's not on a highway. <laughs> you, get, you can't accidentally get there. But at their, uh, at their livestock, their producer's uh, auction in San, San Angelo is the largest sheep and wool producing area in the United States of America. Who knew? So the question really is, why do we care about Sheep. I mean, when was the last time you saw a sheep? When was the last time you fed one? Did anybody ever sheared a sheep? I mean, have you ever raised one? Watered one? Most likely never. So what do we care about sheep? What's our interest? Well, I, I think that we should know everything that there is to know about sheep because like it or not, that was the Lord's favorite metaphor when He talked about people. You and me. Sheep. So we need to know about a little bit about them. So turn with me to Luke 15, 1 through 7. And we're going to look there 
And what we're going to find is God's love for the sinner. The love that God has towards those who are outside and looking in. Now, now we know this to be intuitive, intuitively to be true. God loves sinners. And yet, sometimes we don't always act like it. And indeed, I, I, I see that sometimes sinners are treated worse, the worst by, uh, by people who are the most religious, at least in appearance. Uh, this was absolutely the case when Jesus committed a sin. And the sin that He committed, it was a sin, by the way. You didn't know it was a sin, did you? But I'm going to explain that in a minute. It's not a biblical sin, but it was, it was a sin of associating with sinners. So let me, I need to read the last two verses of chapter 14 for context. Uh, it says, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. In the first two verses, that is, one, 1 and 2, the first thing we see, the first thing we witness is the disgust of these religious leaders. Jesus was associating with those who were thought to be hopeless. They, they, were, they were sinners. You know, and most of the, the Gospels, certainly in Luke, the opposition was almost always Pharisees and scribes, that is, the teachers of the law. And so for us, knowing some of the rabbinical teachings, what is it that they taught? We actually know what they taught. Uh, and, and that can help shed some light because the people that Jesus were associating with were known by these religious leaders as people of the land. Now, that may sound wonderful, but by, far from being a compliment, in fact, it was, a, it was to censure them. And uh, the Pharisaic law read this way. When a man, one of the people of the land, uh, entrust no money to him, take no testimony from him, trust him with no secret, do not appoint him guardian of an orphan, do not make him the custodian of charitable fund, do not accompany him on a journey, do not be the guest of any such man or have him as a guest. So Jesus was violating all the understanding that the Pharisees and the scribes had of how you treat 
and interact with sinners or, as they called them, people of the, the land. Interestingly, as I read that little bit for context in 14 and 34 and 35, he who has uh, ears to hear, let him hear. And in the very next verse, what does it say? You know, you know, chapters and verses, uh, oh, by the way, are not part of the sacred text. Uh, that was done by Bishop Usher sometime in the way back, and some people say that he was riding on horseback when he, when he made the division. So anyway, the point, there's an actual point here that connects it together. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And they gathered to do what? To hear. Who? The tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Jesus, the rabbi, was not going with the flow. He was spending too much time with the lowest of society, the sinners. And their objection was that the sinners were coming to Jesus and believing. Now, with biting irony, and I know this will go against some of the things you've heard, we can have a discussion, but with biting irony, Jesus referred to the Pharisees as those who were righteous and had no need for salvation. I mean, his point wasn't that they didn't have need for salvation. Read that in verse 7. His point was that everyone needs salvation. doesn't matter how righteous you think you are, your righteousness is not going to get you there. It's only the righteousness of Christ embedded, implanted in you by the Spirit of God that's going to get you there. So who were the hearers and, and what does it mean that they listened? Well, we already mentioned the hearers were the tax collectors. They were the sinners. But second, what does it mean to listen? And I think that that has a helpful understanding for us today. You know, current research says that only about 10% of people could be considered good listeners or active, uh, what they call active or effective listeners. We are so distracted. We're distracted by our smartphones. We're distracted by our to-do lists, our technology. We're distracted by what occurred driving to church this morning. We're distracted by what we think is going to happen this afternoon. We're distracted by all manner of things and we don't listen. And the worst of it is, is that the biggest distraction of all is what's going on inside of our own brains. Because the truth is, you can think and ponder about three to four times faster than I can speak. So while I'm talking, you're thinking. And that can be good. But it can also not be good. Because if you fill the space with something that is not listening, then you're simply formulating a response. And that's what most of us do. We formulate responses. We're looking for an opening to insert our own opinion. And so we don't listen to what the other person actually has to say. We're listening not in order to understand, as Covey would say, but we're listening in order to reply, to respond, or to react. Dutch writer Henry, uh, Henry Nouwen wrote, Listening is much more than allowing another to talk while waiting for a chance to respond. Listening is a form of spiritual hospitality by which you invite strangers to become friends. So, 
research, they've actually done a lot of research on, on this, and it turns out that active listening focuses uh, the mind. It improves our relationships. It promotes trust. It reduces conflicts, and it increases our ability to inspire people to those whom we're communicating. But not all communication comes with words, right? I, I just love the way Jesus does this kind of stuff. There's a text that just, one of my favorite texts, and looking at the woman, he spoke to the man. Jesus does that kind of thing all the time. Not all communication comes from words. Peter Drucker, one of the great business minds of the last century, said something that at first sounds a little bit nonsensical, but he said this, the most important thing in communication is hearing what isn't said. You know, um, I, I, I think about Johnsy and Happy when they left. They had to go to all this uh, training, and if you've ever been on the mission field, you had to go through some training. And one of the bits and pieces that you'll always get in your training before you go, because it's so important. What do you go to? What are you going to another country for? To communicate, right? To communicate with them certain things. You want to communicate with them about about Christ. And so one of the things that you learn is the difference between high context and low context cultures. So what does that even mean? A high context culture is a culture where the information that surrounds the event and to its ultimate uh, meaning is it's, it's largely nonverbal. It is also largely familial. It is largely hierarchical, and, uh, and, it, and it comes with this deep uh, understanding of the cultural roots of a place. In other words, there are questions that you don't ask. Well, why don't you ask those questions? Because you know not to ask them. Well, how do I know not to ask them? Well, you just, you just know, right? And then there are low-context cultures like America and Sweden and Norway Germany, you know, you've got, you know, England, right? You've got these what are called low context because they're not reliant on family relationships, because they're not reliant on hierarchical systems socially, because they're not reliant on this deep cultural understanding. What are we reliant on? Words, grammar, syntax. So what you have is people with words and grammar and syntax going over to nations, particularly in the far and the Middle East, and we take our low context into their high context, and they think a number of things about us. In fact, where do you think the term, maybe they, we don't use it anymore, but back in the 60s and 70s, it was the ugly American. Well, were Americans really ugly? No, not at all. It was the clash between the low and the high context, where from the low context into a high context, right, we're, we're speaking and we're, we're using words that are far too direct. High context is indirect because you know what the other person means, no matter what they said. Low context no, 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 no. You say exactly what you mean. So you're, you were so direct, it's to the point of rudeness. You know, it, it, we're so busy, it's to the point of 
distraction, and we're so, now understand this, we're so non-deferential that it's to the point of disrespect. And so we have to, you have to understand these, these kinds of things. And so, uh, you know, I mean, as a low-context American, when I first began to make good friends in Jordan, not just acquaintances, but you actually began to make friends, I thought they would get close to you to begin with. No, was I wrong? The closer you get, the closer they get. So like my space is like, you know, I'm like this. I'm like really comfortable right now. <laughs> if I start going down here, right, and you start getting closer physically, right, making that eye contact, right, it gets, starts to get a little uncomfortable. Well, they would get very close. In fact, there was a, uh, a little thing that I learned, a little Arabic phrase was, Something along the lines, it doesn't translate well into English, but it's, it's something along the lines of, you, you do not trust a person whose breath you cannot smell. <laughs> so who listened? In our text, sinners were the listeners. Sinners were the ones who were hearing what Jesus Christ had to say. And what you find is a fundamental truth about people. And that is, listeners listen and grumblers grumble. That's a pretty broad spectrum, but that's what we have in our text here. Who listened? Tax collectors and sinners. Who grumbled? Oh, well, that was the people who really knew God. Those were the ones who really knew the Bible, the Torah. They had it all together. And so when they saw this, Jesus receiving sinners, they they grumbled because he received them and because he ate with them. The sinners drew near to do uh, listening, but they drew near. They drew near to listen as well, but they drew near to listen, not to do good, but to do harm. Motivation in your listening is important. They murmured. That that's what the word that's used here in verse two. It, they didn't like those whom Jesus was keeping keeping company with, so they, they murmured. I love this uh, particular uh, word here. It means to, to murmur, to, to mutter, to speak in a low tone such that the sound is heard, but not the words, not the content. So that the message is communicated, right? But you don't know what they're saying. Yeah, as an aside, uh, or as an application perhaps, we're all familiar with the phrase heart murmur. So we know, we've, we've all heard that. Uh, and, but what is interesting about a heart murmur, and some of you physicians can correct me if I'm wrong here, but a heart murmur, the murmur itself, is not a disease. It is actually symptomatic of something else that's wrong with the heart. There's something else going on. In other words... A heart murmur is an indication of another problem that's happening. So it's an attendant circumstance. It's something that is present when something else is, is the cause. And so physical heart murmurs, when a doctor's listening and they hear this, that alerts them to some kind of a condition. Hey, we need to do this or we need to do that. 
We need to think about this. We need to think about that. In the same way, we have spiritual heart murmurs that signal us about spiritual heart conditions. I mean, like the physical heart, murmuring is not the problem. So when you hear one of your fellow believers or friends or whatever murmuring, understand that their murmuring is not the real problem. It's an indication of a spiritual problem in the heart. Rest assured, when you hear murmuring, there's a heart problem. There's something wrong with their attitude. Something wrong with their relationship with God. Now, I need to point out a couple of things since I made that statement that are, because it's important to distinguish between murmuring and not murmuring. Because some people may say, ooh, well, I'm murmuring when you're not murmuring at at all. Okay, so murmuring is not offering constructive criticism. That's not murmuring. Murmuring is not owning your voice. Owning your voice is not murmuring. When I say owning my voice, I mean saying the ability to say to another person what it is that you want, need, or desire. And, and that may lead to a disagreement. So what? People disagree all the time. Unity does not mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that we all believe and think and walk in lockstep in the same way. That's not what unity is. That's not what that means. It is not speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is fine. That's not murmuring. What murmuring is, is this. Complaining without regard to a solution. It is the absence of the thankful heart towards God's mercy, His grace, or His love. In other words, it's the sign of an ingrate, an ungrateful heart, and focusing on self rather than on God. Murmuring is a few other clues. Murmuring is never outright. It's always obtuse. comes in from an angle, from some weird side. It's always unclear, and it's barely heard. So a good indicator is when you go, what? What What did you say? And the answer is, nothing. I didn't say anything. So the message is clear, right? You, you understand what the message is. The murmuring communicated the message, which was what? I disapprove of what you're doing, or I disapprove of what you're saying. And... You have the little added piece of it causes emotional distress in the other person. Don't murmur. If you got something to say, say it. Just be right out there and and say it. So anyway, that's what they were doing. They were murmuring, but in this case, Jesus wouldn't take it. Not at all. Well, actually in every case, he never put up with it. And he gave them this parable. So now overall, when you look at the parable of the lost sheep, it, it teaches uh, the bottom line at the, at the end that there is rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents. The contrast to the, in the numbers, uh, 1 in 99, is not Jesus' point, not as I see it. Scripture does, does focus on the importance of the one. So you and I are important to Jesus Christ. But that's not, the, that's not His point here. We have to understand 
that when Jesus talks about the 99, he's, talking, he's not talking about 99 believers who are safe in the fold and the one saint has roamed off and he's going to go out and find him. That's not what's happening here. He's looking at the Pharisees and he's making a bitingly ironic statement against them when he's saying, you 99 who think you're so righteous with no need to repentance. Again, I refer you to verse 7. It's the clue that you can see here. The scribes and the Pharisees are the 99. The one are the sinners and the tax collectors who, who came. And so the parable is not about a straying saint. It's about unbelievers coming to Christ. It's about a sinner who is bound, who is lost, and is to be devoured by a wolf and yet is saved. Second, uh, there was an understanding of sheep in the listener's ears. I have talked about this uh, a, a few moments ago, but I'm, I'm really often struck with the Lord's use of, of a sheep and shepherd uh, metaphor as it, as it relates to us. Because in the past, I always thought of this as some kind of bucolic, you know, pastoral, kind of charming sort of a relationship until I lived in the Middle East. And I, I learned that the metaphor is anything but complimentary. You know, we see the little, the little fluffy things out there and we, yeah, no. You might see one out of a hundred that's a little, little fluffy that you want to go up and cuddle. You don't want to get too close to the others. And in verse 3 and 4, Jesus appealed to the common sense of the people. They all knew that if one sheep had strayed uh, away, the shepherd would leave the ninety and nine. He would go get the one and he would, he would uh, find that one and then he would bring it back and there would be rejoicing. The scribes and the Pharisees were absolutely blind to the connection between a lost sheep and a lost person. They were absolutely blind. And I, there's a quote I'll give you here in just a second. But, uh, but before I do that, they weren't sheep. The Pharisees and the scribes weren't sheep, right? They were lions and eagles and bears and whatever it was. Tigers, oh my. That's what they were. When we went to uh, Little Rock and we went to some baseball games there, they had a farm team for uh, the, the Marlins. And uh, their name was the Biscuits. Boy, that struck fear and trembling into the hearts of the opponents. Yeah, the, 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 the biscuits, right? No, 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 no. That would be like us, all right? We formed a little baseball team here and we were the first colony Bible chapel sheep. Ah, oh, I mean, this is, you know, ah, I can't, you can't make him fierce. No matter what you do with him, you just, it won't happen. And so, Jewish scholar uh, C.J. Montefiore saw the Lord's words here as truly revolutionary. 2,000 years of Christianity has taken the sting out of this. But if you put yourself into their shoes, you would see the truth of this, that the rabbis agreed that God would welcome a penitent sinner. Yes, of course. If, if you want to be a proselyte, come on, come on in. Uh, obey these 17 rules and then those 24 and then those 36, 38. And after about 20 years, maybe we'll let you in. But God, will, God, God is gracious. He'll let you in. The notion 
that God would actually go and pursue someone was absolutely foreign to their minds. It never, not only would it never cross their minds, they would think that it's wrong. That gives you a hint about something else Jesus says a, a little bit later. God does not take the initiative to save the lost. You see, this was an entirely uh, new idea. You know how sheep get lost? Uh, pretty much the same way we do. What they do is uh, the same way those, those 83 uh, that I mentioned earlier. They, they nibbled uh, from one little green patch to the next little green patch, and, and they're completely unaware of their surroundings. Right? They'll go through a fence or they'll, they'll cross over some rocks or they'll, they'll just go, you know, as they, as they search for food and then they'll, one day they'll look up and, you know, or one hour, whatever in the afternoon, they'll say uh, they're lost. So our grandson, uh, Nathan, who turned, he turned 17 last week, yeah? We sang him happy birthday. He's a budding uh, magician. And I, I consider myself a pretty keen observer of nonverbal clues, you know, where, you know, give telltale signs. Of, but perhaps like you or, or like me, you've seen somebody up close, right there, do some of these little magic tricks that you, you, you don't believe your eyes. And you don't know how they did it. And it's, it's amazing you know, that this could happen right in, right in front of you. And he's pretty good. He was, he's able to do this. Well, and it really was up until the advent of videography when, of course, they were able to slow everything down. I mean, before that, you know, an apprentice had to be, come in and a master would teach him. They would have to slow down, not half speed, you could hardly see the half speed, quarter speed and less in order to teach that apprentice how to do it. And this is kind of what James does where we're going through in our small groups, he kind of takes that apart, so he slows it down, so you can see how a sheep strays. Now, and I'm switching metaphors, right? I'm switching over to the believer now, and that's that's uh, fine as it relates to an application, not an interpretation. But nevertheless, what we have here is that when we are, as James says, we're enticed, right? It's an internal thing, and he slows it down. And once you understand the process, like once you see the video of how the magician did it, the magic is gone. The mystery is gone. And now you have something that you can fight against. In World War II, they called it the four F's, the find, fix, fight, and finish. Well, the problem is, if you remember Shrek, he had wandered off and the wool had covered his eyes. The wool, had, so that he could not see, and the first thing they had to do was to pin the wool out of his eyes. The first thing in our case is to be able to see. And it brings new meaning to the, someone pulled the wool over his eyes, when in fact the someone who pulled the wool is us. We are the ones who pull the wool over our own eyes. Finally, in verses... Uh, Five and six, we learn that finding the lost is a joyful experience. If you've ever led someone to Jesus Christ, it is an exhilarating experience. It's a, it's, 
it's a wonderful thing to to see for God to use you to be a part of leading someone into his family. You know, with the shepherd here, there's no grumbling about carrying the ant, the, the the sheep. The shepherd's rejoicing. He's he, you know, he doesn't whack the sheep. Like, what happens when you get lost? Were you ever lost as a kid? Your mom finds you. What's the first thing she does? Oh, I found you! I found you! I found you! No, she's whack. <laughs> and then she hugs you. And you know, it's all love. He's carrying the thing because the joy of finding the lost overshadows everything else. And in the case here, in his happiness, he calls on others to share. The Jews didn't feel this way. Alfred Edersheim, who was raised as a Jew and was converted to Christ, he was an author uh, as, as well, he he wrote this. He quoted the Jewish saying, There is joy. Now I want you to I want you to listen because this is what Jesus was twist was was flipping on its head. The saying by the rabbis was this there is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. And Jesus said, There is joy over the sinner who repents. See, you, if you want to try to begin to understand the hatred that the Pharisees and the scribes had towards Christ, you have to understand that everything that they taught and said, He just flipped it and pushed it right back in their faces. And Jesus is saying that far from grumbling and murmuring in heaven because of His association with sinners... They were, in fact, rejoicing. You know, uh, in your right, I, I have a saying, and I've, I've mentioned it before. I've said it a few times. It always requires a little bit of explanation. Hopefully, one day here, I'll be able to say it without any explanation at all. Is God save us from righteous men? What I mean by that is God save us from self-righteous men. Because a righteous person who is self-righteous, who think they're righteous, they will stand in the gap and they will, they will poke anybody who tries to come through. God save us from that. In our righteousness, in the Pharisees' righteousness, they thought they were right, but they were 180 degrees out of phase. They were not right. And so this application here at the end brings out the joy in heaven over one repentant sinner. It may be in our lives, maybe in your life, that we have found ourselves kind of nibbling away into a foreign country or into a place of danger. Destruction, especially in the Christian life, does not come at once. It never does, never has, never will. It's a process. It is a chain of events, attitudes, and behaviors that lead to death, as we're told by James. And one final thing. When was the last time you rejoiced? I have to ask myself that question. When was the last time I rejoiced? 
rejoicing is not something that we're familiar with very much. To really rejoice. And what would it take for heaven to rejoice? I mean, if it's difficult for us to rejoice, what would it take for all of heaven to rejoice? Well, I'll tell you what. You could write it down. Each one of us. The day that you accepted Christ. That day. That moment. All of heaven rejoiced. It exploded in joyful celebration. The day of your salvation. What a thought for you if you're in here and you don't know Him. Do you realize that today you could cause through trusting Christ as your Savior all heaven to rejoice? At times like Shrek, not the ogre, the sheep. (laughs) Well, maybe the ogre too. Our sin can blind us to who we are. We are children of the King. It can turn us away from God. But if we're willing to listen, God will speak to us because He loves us and He will not leave us there. I want to end with a very brief, it's only about a minute long, video clip and then I'll, and then I'll close in prayer. Father, that You sent Your Son to die on a cross so that the Good Shepherd would lay down His life for us. We are so deeply, deeply grateful. Father, we thank You for Your great love for us that, Lord, far from not entertaining and eating with sinners, You rejoice in that. Lord, for those who think they're righteous, Father, You resist that. Yet You do not turn from them either. You you want them to, to change their heart so that they might turn towards You. Lord, we are grateful eternally that You love us. And we will rejoice in heaven with you throughout all eternity for all the lost that you have saved. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.